welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Among this year's fellows added to the National Academy of Public Administration are several still-working senior federal employees. One of them is prominent on Capitol Hill. Wendy Ginsburg is staff director of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, and she joins me now. Dr. Ginsburg, good to have you on. That's good. I'd like to clarify, I'm the staff director for the subcommittee on government operations, not for the full committee. So my jurisdiction is large, but not as large as you would have me. Well, you've got headroom to move up here, I guess, in the world in the meantime. But staff director, even of a subcommittee, Mm -hmm. what exactly does that mean? What does the work entail? I like to think my job is really easy to describe. I execute on the priorities of my boss, Chairman Jerry Connolly, from Virginia's 11th district, period. That's my job. The hard part is trying to extrapolate exactly what his priorities are at any given time and then figuring out the tools that we have on the Hill to execute those priorities. So my tools predominantly are things like hearings, which are really visible. They're the ones that people mostly see in the press, but there's a lot more invisible tools that we have that can help execute on those priorities. So we can write letters to the administration. We can have briefings with the administration. We can talk to stakeholders. Largely, our currency is communication. And in addition to thinking about the actual policy implementation and the execution of that through sort of oversight and uh, legislative tools that we have, we build a team, make sure that my team knows exactly where we're headed. I have to communicate you know, to my the team that is exclusively mine, but I also communicate to the full committee about what we're doing, communicate to all of the members member staff and offices throughout Congress so that they know what we're doing. So it's a lot of getting everybody on board with Mr. Connolly's priorities, explaining why those are the priorities, and then doing what we can do and figuring out where we can move things along. So in that sense, the term staff director means you are a director of a lot of things on the staff, but also there are some elements of chief of staff to it as well. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I am not Mr. Connolly's chief of staff, but there's a lot of similarities and overlap in that it's direct communication with my chairman, understanding exactly where he wants to go and why, and and letting him know where I might see some obstacles in the road, where I might see some opportunities, and uh, working in partnership with all different components around the Hill to get us to the final outcome that we'd like to see. And then staff directors at this level then go with the party. That is to say, if the House were to change hands and go to the Republican side, there would be a different person in your job at this point? Uh, Yes. I've actually never uh, been serving in a political position on the Hill when there uh, has been a change. But I believe that my position as it currently exists would not exist in the minority. But, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, this job will continue to exist for as long as it will. Which points up to the fact that you are fairly new on the Hill job, but you spent a pretty good stint also at the Partnership for Public Service, working on issues, which is presumably a nonpartisan type of thing. And one of the ones I wanted to ask you about was the Seize the Data Initiative. (laughs) As I know, Jerry Connolly has been interested in data-driven decision-making in the government, as have a lot of members. And this is something many parties in town are working on, many elements in town. I don't mean party parties. So tell us about that work. Interestingly, my mug, which nobody can see right now, actually says seize the data as well, carpe datum. So I'm a firm believer that good policy requires a foundation of good research and evidence to make those policy decisions. And the seize the data initiative, uh, we worked in tandem with some outside stakeholder groups to figure out where agencies were using data well and where they weren't using data well and what were some hot tips and tricks to help agencies evolve along that 
teleology so that they can figure out where to put their foot down and start figuring out where they already had administrative data sets like sitting on their hard drives and use them to make better decisions, particularly when it came to questions like, how do I find and recruit the right people? Where are we getting our people from? Who's staying? Who's going? And those data sets exist organically because you track them anyway. People just weren't thinking about um, leveraging them for insights. So that was where that initiative came from. I would like to also say I came up with the name Seize the Data, right? That was pretty fun. All right. Um, Thank you. I like naming things and I'm a huge fan of puns. So that initiative was incredible. We really had a lot of enthusiasm from across the agencies and it really aligned with the Foundations and Evidence Policymaking Act that had come out just before that. So there were some great overlaps and a real enthusiasm for using data. I think that enthusiasm continues through uh, and is a real big foundation for Mr. Connolly. If you listen to him speak almost on anything, it's a combination of storytelling and the data to undergird why that story is indicative of a larger context. So data are like critical to everything that we do on the Hill every day. If you're putting your boss up there to give a talk on something and he doesn't have the underlying data and you're just giving him naked rhetoric, you've set him up for a real problem. So we use data all the time in everything that we do. We're speaking with Dr. Wendy Ginsberg. She is the staff director for the Subcommittee on Government Operations in the House and also a newly named fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. And are you occasionally one of those whisper-in-their-ear types that we see on the hearings that are televised? Um, If it's funny, I'll whisper a joke in his ear. But Jerry Connolly is one of those members who... He's just so smart and listens to everything. He knows exactly how to respond. And I will write something on a paper and think, that's pretty good. And then I'll just hear him orate and add things and organically put different spins on it and just elevate everything that I do. It's a wonderful partnership with him to hear him take what I know to be true and just orate it in a way that resonates. He's an incredible member to work for. Yes, he's been in my studio on several occasions over the years, and I agree he's Really nice guy, too. Fun to talk mm-hmm. to and, and joke with. So, yeah, you've got the uh, the full package there. It's both good and bad to work for somebody so smart, right? Like, you're excited to see what he does with the work that you hand him. But in one of my first meetings with him, I gave him bullet points of what we were going to talk about in the meeting. And I had sent them to him the night before. And uh, I got to the meeting and I start reading through the bullet points. And he just stares at me. He goes... I read the memo. What else do you have to tell me? And I looked at him and I said, you know, I I haven't worked for many principals who actually do the pre-read. I've learned my lesson won't happen again. You know, that's Jerry Connolly. He does the pre-read. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, he knows the uh, semicolons and the uh, whereas twos and the therefores we hereby's. Okay. We're speaking with Dr. Wendy Ginsburg. She is staff director for the Subcommittee on Government Operations, part of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. And you have drafted bills. You mentioned that's one of the things you actually do. And I've always wondered how that drafting gets done, because the general public thinks bills should sound a certain way. Those of us that have read many, many bills know that they're highly legalistic, arcane-looking, replacing one codicil with another in a subparagraph of this particular existing law and all of this. How does that get done? Is it done by hand? Is there a machinery that can that generate this? It's just magic and hope. It's it's actually, interestingly, I, I am not a lawyer. The head of our legislative team on the Oversight Committee is not a lawyer. What you want to do when you're writing legislation is think about what your policy outcome is. And there's some areas where I genuinely have an expertise in the federal law, the U.S. code that underlies 
the legislation that I'm trying to write, for example, in Federal Inspectors General, I'm pretty familiar with the legal language in there because I've studied it for more than a decade. But in other areas, I know very little and should not be playing in that sandbox in any real way. What you do is you sit there and you figure out your policy outcome, and then you can have, you can either craft the bill if you, and the legislation, um, looking at the legal language and crossing out what you don't want in existing law and writing in what you do and hand that to legislative counsel. Or you can just have a conversation with legislative counsel and say, here's the outcome that I want. What part of U.S. code am I playing in? What should I be looking at? How can we make this work? And I agree with you. Federal code is not written in clear English um, in a lot of ways. But that's also because you have to be meticulous and careful and define every term. And there's terms of art that you don't know that you're tripping over sometimes. And then you're creating terms of art that you don't even know that you're creating. When you talk to legislative counsel on the Hill, we call them ledge counsel. When you talk to legislative counsel on the Hill, sometimes it can feel like your mind is bending, like you're going through that exercise in elementary school where they tell you how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but you can only do the thing that you're actually told to do, put the butter on the bread and you actually put a stick of butter on top of the bread. It feels a lot like that when you're doing it. And you just have to break it up into component parts and really focus on the nuts and bolts of where you're trying to get to and always just the North Star of your policy outcome. We're speaking with Dr. Wendy Ginsburg. She is the staff director for the Subcommittee on Government Operations in the House and also a newly named fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. The outcome can be very different than intended by the people that negotiated a bill if the precision is not in there in the actual bill language. My question is, there's no automated or artificial intelligence system or way you can say, feed me up all of the affected areas of the code as it exists. It's all pretty much knowledge and done by hand. A lot of it is done by hand. The Ledge Council might have some sort of tool that I'm unaware of, but the simpletons on the committee themselves, we we do it all by hand and think it through and really dig into the U.S. code and try to figure out what we can do to make the policy change we want to see and really think about the potential downstream ramifications because our ultimate goal is to improve things, but we really want to make sure we're doing no harm in that process as well. And like you said, there can be chain reactions when you're changing code somewhere. You might be affecting something in another part of code you're completely unaware of. And you you really have to, um, and the, I guess the most important part of legislation is talking to the stakeholder communities. So you are very aware of all potential unintended ramifications of your bill. And even then you can't be sure, but the most important part of legislating is talking to anyone and everyone who could be affected. I wanted to ask you about your 10 years in the Congressional Research Service, which is a really high-powered but little-known element in the Congress. What did you learn there? How did your view of the world get developed in that particular stint? I'd like to say that's where I fell in love with Congress, I think. CRS is this wonderful think tank that's built exclusively to help Congress and its staff. And what I learned there are all of these amazing tools and databases that exist to help people understand what government is and what government does. It's where I really developed my love of sort of the underlying apparatus of government and how it operates. And my thinking about this, and I actually talked to Chairman Connolly about this a lot, is that the work we do on government operations builds the foundation for agencies to do all of the amazing stuff they do as part of their missions. So we couldn't have FEMA going out and helping communities in the aftermath of a hurricane or other natural disaster. For example, if we didn't help them build the underlying apparatus of the Department of Homeland Security and FEMA itself, making sure that they have the right technologies in place, making sure they have the appropriate personnel, do they have the right authorities that they need to execute that mission in a way where they've built the government apparatus to go out and help communities when they need it there? These are the things we think about 
all of the time on government operations, and I really built those chops when I was at CRS. CRS is almost academic in some ways, and mm-hmm. being a PhD and have spent a pretty long academic career before going into the workforce, it must have been appealing in that sense. It was this great combination of the two things that I had built at that point, which is an academic background and journalism. I was a journalist before that, writing for both the New York Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer. And, and we can CRS, forgive you for yeah. that. <laughs> Thanks. And CRS was this great combination of the research and then finding plain language to help staff understand these deeply complicated issues and find avenues into making positive policy change, however they define that policy change. We're speaking with Dr. Wendy Ginsburg. She is the staff director for the Subcommittee on Government Operations in the House and also a newly named fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. And areas of interest that you have focused on are federal inspectors general and making sure they have the data and information independence that they are supposed to have had. But these things sometimes takes 30 or 40 years to work out. The Office of Personnel Management mm-hmm. and Finances of the Postal Service, and these are things to the general public, are totally arcane if they're even aware of them at all. And Everyone knows the Postal Service. Everyone. They know the Postal Service, but they don't know the, <laughs> the finances of whether to prepay Fair. and you, you know, retirement benefit benefits. Yeah, and you're all on of it. this, right? Mm-hmm. And all they know is you know what a stamp costs and so on. About to go up, apparently. Yeah, right. <laughs> Still a bargain. I always say, you know, see if Federal Express will deliver a letter cross-country for 49 cents or 57 cents or 62 cents. But I guess my question is, what keeps you going in these very arcane areas when, you know, it's not defense or it's not health policy, these things that people feel like they feel directly? We talk about this a lot in GovOps. It takes a certain person to want to work in this space that isn't sexy until it's sexy, right? We like to think that we're important because we let all of the sexy stuff happen, right? Without the work that we're doing to think about the nuts and bolts of how government can and should operate and thinking about how government could operate more efficiently and effectively to help taxpayers and help people get access to things when they're in need of it. Um, Chairman Connolly, for example, his priority has really been federal technology and making it get to a place where it can actually engage people where they're at each and every day. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it's that government needs to be able to reach you regardless of the context, especially when you need government most. And he's been a crusader to make sure that agencies are getting the technologies they need to balance like getting money out quickly to people who need it with making sure it's going to the right person. And we don't believe that those are in conflict with each other. We think that with the right planning and purchasing of the right technologies, those things can go hand in hand. You can, in fact, expedite getting things to people when they need it, where they need it, and making sure it's going to the right person if you're doing that effectively. And we're about to hit our 15th iteration of our Federal Information Technology Acquisition and Reform Act hearing, or FATAR. 15. And sometimes we get a little chuckle when we say we've done 15 of them, but that has saved $30 billion in its lifetime. And that's that's amazing to have that on your credential. We will take all of the laughter in the world if at the end of every Congress we can look at our constituents and the, and the rest of the taxpayers across the nation and say, look at the billions of dollars we've saved for you. And a chuckle or two is just fine with us to get there. And what do you expect to focus on as a NAPA fellow? Because fellows do get drawn into actual projects called up for by Congress. And will you have to stay away from the issues that the committee does, you know, while you're a committee staff member and also at NAPA? 
You know, I am so interested in a lot of the research that goes on at the National Academy of Public Administration. I'm going to work with Terry to make sure that I'm not tripping any inappropriate wires, but I'm very interested in all the work they're doing in technology leadership. I feel like part of the fiber of my being is recruitment and retention in public service at all levels of government and figuring out how we get early career individuals into government in a clear and effective way. That retirement tsunami that's been threatening for 10 years is 20 years is still threatening. So we want to make sure that we've got future leaders ready to take over at the helm of all of these agencies that, like I said, do incredibly important work each and every day to serve the nation. And just briefly, what interests you when you're not working, if you ever have periods when you're not working? Yeah, I love teaching. I teach for University of Pennsylvania. I teach for Boston University in their NDC program. So when students come to DC to intern, I love teaching them about Congress. Some of them roll their eyes when I get too involved in it, but I love teaching them about Congress, but mostly teaching them how to think about the policy issues that they're interested in and finding the nooks and crannies to open policy windows so they can make the positive changes they would like to see in their country. Or if they're deciding that D.C. isn't the place for them, that there's lots of government opportunities and public service opportunities for them. So I do a lot of teaching on the side. I have a daughter who has a lacrosse habit. So if you're around the D.C. region on weekends, I might be standing on the field next to you watching your daughter play lacrosse against my daughter. Please say hi. All right. Dr. Wendy Ginsburg is the staff director of the Subcommittee on Government Operations, part of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. And she's a new fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. 
So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. 
um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere. 
but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.